It's not unusual. In fact, it's part of his routine for artist Mark Rooney to be listening to classical music as he's painting in his studio. He has a particular fondness for Ravel and Debussy, and a piece like this, Le Tombeau du Couperin, may help us feel something of what we're about to hear from Rooney as he describes his creative process in anticipation of a 50-year retrospective of his work that will open April 1st at the Hazelton Art League. We learn from Eloise Maria Murdoch that at the heart of his teaching methods, Ravel emphasized mastery of technique through the imitation of models. Ravel told his students, copy, and if while copying you remain yourself, that's because you have something to say. Ravel held François Couperin in great esteem. He valued the simplicity, grace, and transparency of Couperin's writing. In 1914, Ravel wrote a transcription of a Forlan by Couperin, and within a few months of imitating this model, the composer began work on an entire French suite that included a Forlan of his own, in Ravel's own voice. And as Mark Rooney describes the way he came to develop his own voice as a painter, he too was drawn to the work of an earlier master, in this case, Jasper Johns. He embraced Johns' approach to painting, making it, of course, his very own. We know, too, Ravel always valued the world of childhood, innocence, and delight. Think of Mother Goose. And that spirit may have been reflected stylistically in a certain grace, simplicity, and clarity. Not childishness, but childlike in his sensibilities. So when we hear that youth and innocence is the title Rooney gives to his most recent body of work, developing now 50 years since he began painting, we recognize that these pieces are the work of a mature artist who may have been able to synthesize the ways he's been exploring life and his art practices to achieve a richness, grace, and ease in the depth and complexity of these canvases. Mark Rooney paid a visit to the WVIA studios to talk with us about his work as he prepares for the opening of his 50-year retrospective. We start, though, at the very beginning. My mother is from Delano, Pennsylvania, and my grandparents, and in fact, my great-grandmother was the first person born in Delano, Pennsylvania. My father is from Monte City. They got married in the late 40s and moved to the Philadelphia area, so that's where I was born and where I really grew up. However, my grandparents still lived in Delano and Monte City, so I would come up here as a kid in the summers and spend all of my summers here. So I kind of feel like this is my roots, or I'm sort of from this area, even though I grew up in Philly. And then my family moved around. We spent time in Baltimore. We spent time in Indiana before I even graduated from high school. As far as making art, yes, I was one of those who started when I was a kid. I don't have it. I left it with my first girlfriend years ago, but my first body of work, and this was when I was maybe five or six, I don't remember, but a young child, my father would get his shirts back from the dry cleaner and they would come with a, a piece of cardboard in the shirt. And so I, I wish I had this body of work. But I started doing what a lot of kids do, copying cartoons. So I copied Beetle Bailey and Huckleberry Hound and, uh, and all of that. And, and I got a lot of praise. You know, I, I don't know if it's genetic or not. Everything's genetic. There's no other artist in my family, and I often wonder about that. I want to look back, you know, 
part of my family is German, but a lot of it is Irish. So I'm thinking back in 17-something, there's some Irish relative who was an artist. I don't know, because no one else in my immediate family was an artist, but I got a lot of encouragement. People looked at, oh, yeah, that's really talented. And so when you get encouragement, you kind of keep it up. My mother encouraged me a lot. She was happy that, that I was an artist, so she bought me all of these art kits when I was a kid. One I still remember, it's still around, but there was an art kit by a guy named John Nagy, and it was very sophisticated. And this was when I was a, a child, but it came in a box, and you would get a booklet and a piece of charcoal and some other materials, and he would teach you how to do things that I still teach at, at Penn State or, or in my art classes. One funny thing about that, though, just to kind of date myself, now when you use charcoal, you spray it with what's called fixative when you're finished. But the fixative that came in the John Nagy kit, you had to blow through an atomizer. <laughs> it was before, you know, aerosol cans. Uh, but then I just kept up art all through growing up. You know, I was a child of the 60s. So when I was in junior high, I was doing portraits of the Beatles and all, you know, I've always done art. I've always been kind of known as an artist. I never thought you could pursue art as a career. Um, but around 1975, I started my first sort of serious body of work, and that's what I, and it was post-impressionist. In other words, I jumped right in. I wasn't, I was taking classes here and there, but I wasn't going to art school yet. But I was going to museums and reading a lot of books, so I started painting kind of in the style of Chagall, Picasso, uh, artists like that, Modigliani, and, and a few of those will be in my retrospective, the, the very first body of work, and there's, there's about 20 or 30 of those. Some are, are pretty good, some are embarrassingly bad, <laughs> but, but still, I was teaching myself uh, how to make art, but around 1977, I thought, well, Rooney, you know, you might have to make a living someday, maybe you should, like, go to college. So in 1977, I started an art school full-time, Tyler School of Art, which is a part of Temple. But the first thing that happened in 1977 at uh, Tyler School of Art, we took a field trip to New York to the Whitney Museum, and I saw the retrospective of an artist named Jasper Johns. And it was one of those life-changing moments. I immediately went back to art school, stopped the post-impressionist work completely, and began kind of imitating Jasper Johns to a certain extent. And then I, I kind of made it my own. But yeah, that's the story of my, my art career. And then I went to graduate school, got my master's degree from Maryland Institute in Baltimore. And then I moved permanently to Washington, D.C. and started a, a painting career and a teaching career. And I've been doing both things ever since, <laughs> right up to this time. And it's wonderful to know that you have a time when you can reflect, because I think it's hard in any society which is so nonstop to just say, if I had to look back, what are those key canvases that I'd like people to see? Even if it's maybe not the best, but it was a pivotal one for me. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm very thrilled to be having a retrospective. It's what all artists want to have. And I'm just going to plug the Hazelton Art League here a little bit. They have a new building at Broad and Laurel in Hazelton. It's an old bank that they totally refinished. And so they have classes, et cetera, there. But their gallery space rivals spaces I've seen in Paris and New York. It's an absolutely beautiful space. It's huge. It'll be a retrospective from 1975 up until like last month. And apropos of what you said, uh, Eric, I can't wait, even as an artist, just to see all of the different periods kind of lined up and, and how my work has changed. And if you come and see the show, and this is what I expect to see myself, 
the style of my work has changed quite a bit over the years. I've been painting almost 50 years. That's really hard for me to believe. But the style has changed on the surface, the way they look considerably. I do believe there's a continuity, though, of thought that, you know, runs through through all of the work. So there'll be a little bit of work from all of the different periods uh, that I've been involved in. And I, I want to say that uh, I feel so lucky because my muse has never deserted me for almost 50 years. I just feel lucky about this. I've never once gone into the studio and said, hmm, what am I going to paint today? Or I've never had the equivalent of writer's block, that it all just flows. If anything, I wish I had more time to keep up with all of the ideas I have. So it'll be thrilling even for me to see all of the work lined up in a beautiful art space and sort of yeah go through all of the work that I've, that I've done. I'm going to give an artist talk on Sunday, April 3rd at one o'clock. So if you come, I'll uh, give a tour of the work. But even more important, I'll be there to answer questions and take observations from other people because that's thrilling for the artist. It's Marcel Duchamp who's this saying is attributed to. I don't know if he really said it, but someone said the viewer completes the picture. So with my art, there are specific intentions that I'm trying to get across, but I like to leave it open enough that everyone else can see what they see. And I love to hear what other people see. So if you come on Sunday for the artist talk, that's what it'll be. I'll, I'll discuss the work, but I'd be happy to take questions and to hear what other people think about the work, too. Even though your work has changed a good deal over the decades, you say there's an underlying continuity, perhaps. One of the things we notice as viewers is that you were using symbols in your early work, crosses, for example, the cross, and there are symbols in your current body of work. As an example, in the images that you sent to me. Is there a Madonna figure there? Oh, I love painting Mary. Yeah, there's several Madonnas. This is a modern-looking woman, and she has lilies, and any time we see lilies and a woman in blue, we can think of the iconography and the tradition of the Madonna in painting. A dark-haired woman, and she takes up much of the canvas. That's probably some of the newer work. You know, back to the crosses and all of that, the way I explain that is you can take the boy out of the Catholic Church, but you can't take the Catholic Church out of the boy. And I was very conflicted about that because the Rooney side of the family was not just Catholic, but like very strict Irish Catholic. And, you know, and I saw the effect that had on my father, et cetera. So that's sort of one of the issues I'm working through. I have actually painted Mary for whatever reason, just because that's one symbol that I kind of like, you know, purity and what have you. There are doves flying. Oh, welcome to my garden. And there's a skull. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, that's not meant to necessarily be a Madonna. You Again, the viewer completes the picture. You can see it that way. And some of my work is very overtly symbolic. A lot of it is uh, subconsciously symbolic where I'm free associating things. And that that's my latest body of work. And uh, so it wasn't meant to be a Madonna you know, I'm kind of a surrealist, meaning I tell stories, but I don't want them to be too, I don't, I don't think ours should be like a, a joke. You know, you tell the punchline, and, oh, I get it. And then you walk away. I like there to be sort of a mystery, even when I'm making it. But that particular work is, that's work that I started in 2018. And that work very specifically is abstract expressionism. At heart, that's what I do in a way. And I love Jackson Pollock and I love explaining Jackson Pollock. I guess that explaining is not the right word, but you know, a lot of people are dubious about work like that. So I love to, yes, explain how he did his work and uh, no, your kid couldn't do it or what have you. I just love Jackson Pollock. And what I love about Jackson Pollock is this same thing, you know, he got it from jazz music and there's the improvisation that when you start a picture, you don't know where it's going to go. The way leads on to way. The picture takes itself. So that's, that's what I got from abstract expressionism. But I'm also a realist. As I said, I taught figure drawing for many years. So I'm kind of drawn to realistic painting also. 
And I've always kind of done that, but that particular series that I started in 2018, what I would do is I would make a ground. And I've done this for years, but I would have paper, I would use it as a drop cloth. So while I'm painting, things would be dripping and spilling, and then sometimes when they'd spill, I'd manipulate them a little bit. So this is the way I made those works and other works. I'd have this drop cloth that was partly, largely accidental, but not completely. So I'd finish one piece, and then I would pick this piece up, and that would be my ground for the next piece. And they were on paper. So I would put the ground, I would glue it to, I make wooden supports. So I would glue, and some, some of these are pretty large, 48 by 48. So I would glue this abstract expressionist ground to a support. And so I look at this ground, and then the ground suggests things. And it's totally abstract. It suggests things meaning a mood. You know, is it frenzied? Is it calm? Uh, the composition. Oh, well, here, I like this abstract part, but there's a big gap here. So that's where I'm going to put the figurative part. So I start with the ground in this last series that I've been working on since 2018. I start with the, the ground. And then, though, I try and paint as realistically as I can on on this ground. And and the realism I'm getting better at, I, I confess to being more of an abstract expressionist than a realist. And I don't want to be, I don't aspire to trompe l'oeil Renaissance painting, but I, I'm more involved in the realism part. And back to your original question of how you choose materials, of course, if you're painting realistically, every artist knows oil paint is your friend. And it's your friend because you can blend and get subtle effects that you can't get with, with other paint because of the drying time and all of that. Now, I paint the figures. I wish I could hire models, but I can't afford it. So I collect photographs. And this is all part of the work, too, because I collect photographs from different sources. Sometimes friends post selfies on Facebook, and I ask them if I can use it in my work. And I tell this to my students, too. If you're trying to be, paint a realistic picture, best case scenario, you have a model. So this is what I teach in my drawing class. I set up a still life. We look at it and they try and draw from it. So best case scenario with realism, you have an actual model. Uh, and that's how all the Renaissance artists did it. A lot of people are misled into thinking they did all this from memory, but they all, like Caravaggio, is quoted as saying, I never painted a stroke without the model in front of me. So if you see a big horse in a Caravaggio painting, he had a horse in his studio or what have you. So with the realism part on the work I'm working on now, and I try, I never copy photographs. I use them as sources, but the first step is finding a realistic photograph, one that is good enough that I can look at and paint. And that's very hard. And sometimes it's fashion magazines or the New York Times. I love to get pictures from the New York Times, but the first step is finding a photograph that is good enough to paint realistically from. And they're also very narrative, but like Welcome to My Garden, you know, the, the way you described it is accurate. There are doves flying. It is a garden, but all of that kind of happens. I don't set out to paint this. I just, like I say, I look and I go, I know, I'll put a skull here or what have you. That one uh, in particular, and a lot of them are about the life cycle, you know, because I used to, as I said, believe you're born and then you die and that's it. Now I believe you're born and then you die and then you're born again and then you die again and then you're born again and then you die again, that there's this big, they call it samsara, this big cycle of life. So a lot of them are about that, sort of this young woman or you know, youth, let's say, and then I put a skull down here, but not to be horrific, not in the way a lot of people use skulls now, but in the more traditional sense of a vanitas. You know, and another picture that's similar to that has a, a woman standing in front of a window, but then over here is a baby, and then there's a, a skull down here. So a lot of them are kind of about this cycle of life from birth, death, rebirth, etc. And so that's how I would describe that particular picture. But again, I don't think about these things before I start painting. Garden, welcome to my garden, innocence. If that were a poem, we'd be thinking, oh, well, that might be an allusion to the archetypal garden, perhaps, Eden. 
Do you think in terms of titling works that either throw us off or give us well, clues? Well, that one doesn't uh, that one is fairly straightforward because it is actually a picture of a woman in a garden and uh, and she looks kind of inviting in a way. It's interesting because titles are very important. They've always been very important to me. I love to title my work. I don't want to make it untitled number 27 or something because they are narrative paintings. But it's very interesting, too, because when I choose the titles, I don't, like I said, it's not like a joke. I want to tell the punchline. I, I think of a title that, okay, I'm trying to figure out this painting. So I look at the title. Oh, okay. That gives like a clue. Uh, so in that case, it popped into my head because it is a picture of a woman and there is a garden and there's flowers and there are birds. Now, it's, but it's Garden of Eden, maybe, possibly. Like I said, you can take me out of the Catholic Church, So, uh, but you, the imagery still kind of stays there. I would say, though, in a way, and I hope I'm not going out too far out on a limb here, but that woman is, to me, kind of seductive, meaning she's tempting you to come into her garden. <laughs> now, again, I know I'm going to be careful here, but whether once you get in that garden, good things happen or bad things happen, that's kind of the unknown. And that's been a major theme through a lot of just relationships in general, to tell you the truth. So, yeah, that's how I would explain that work. Oh, and there's, I forgot, there's a big, like, gorilla, there's a gorilla in that painting. So as far as Welcome to My Garden, you have to decide whether this is a good invitation or not. And you'll find out after you get in the garden, I guess. And I also do mean garden is like life itself, in a way, like Welcome to My Space, almost, or, or something like that. Now, as far as the gorilla, the general theme in terms of the imagery in a lot of the recent work, I use three main themes, people, animals, and nature plants of various kinds, flowers, trees, etc. Now, th that's kind of maybe obvious in a way, but there is an ecological statement there. So like that gorilla that I just thought of, I fell in love with this gorilla. <laughs> and I painted him a couple of times because he looks so, I don't want to say human, but so alive and like welcoming. So what I'm getting at is I like to include animals because I almost have a new relationship with animals. When I look at the birds and the squirrels in, in our backyard, I don't think they're very much different than you and I. You know, they don't have language, they don't paint pictures, they don't write books, but I think otherwise they're just like us. So it's an ecological statement, obviously, in this day and age. Nature is so important. But I, I add the animals uh, because I want them to, I want to make the animals kind of user-friendly, almost like you can empathize with, with these animals. So I kind of recycle those three things in my narratives for, the, for those reasons. Now, within each painting, though, there's also other individual little stories, but that's sort of the general theme of a lot of the newer work. And there's that continuity from the early work to the current paintings. You are philosophical, figuring out how we relate to the world and what does it mean in a certain way. To me, that's very important, absolutely. Art for art's sake, you know, or a lot of, I think Franz Klein does that and Jackson Pollock does that. But unfortunately, I think a lot of abstract expressionism now are artists who are just playing around with color and texture and all of that. So that's what I mean when I say I'm a philosopher who makes art, rather than exploring painting techniques, which I do, but that's sort of not the important part. The important part is the philosophy and the techniques that fit that in a way. To me, that's what art is. That's what makes it important. And, you know, I've sold some of my work, but I've never made the work based on what will sell. That's just not me at all. I got to make the work that I want to make. And if I can sell it, you know, that's wonderful. But to me, that's what art is. What makes us human is that we make art and we make art so that we can study what it means to be human, so that we know what life was like in the Renaissance because all these artists left these records. Uh, so to me, that's the important part of it. Now we're seeing something much earlier here. That's the self-portrait, and that's the photographic self-portrait. 
when was this? 77. That 70- was I did in is selfie. They weren't called that. It's a photograph that I made when I was in art school in photography class. It's a genre, as we know. Yeah, I've always done self-portraits. Why? What's the impulse to do that? We know Rembrandt, some of those self-portraits of Rembrandt. Oh, they're wonderful. Yes, I show them to my students. Yeah, and he's he did it, I think. And the reason I show it to my students is Rembrandt, it's a record of his life. And it's a very interesting record because, as you probably know, Rembrandt was a starving artist second and a successful artist first. So when you see the young self-portraits, he's like the golden boy. He's on top of the world with his wife, Saskia, and their son, Titus, et cetera, et cetera. I love to tell this story because it's all in the self-portraits. Then over time, he fell out of favor. True story. Uh, Then, well, Saskia died. Titus died. Then he fell out of favor so much that the repo man came and they repossessed his house. And so the point I'm getting at is, yes, as you pointed out with Rembrandt, it's all there in these self-portraits. You can see this young, haughty I mean, in a good way, but this young artist on top of the world. And then life happens, and you can just see that in his face, you know, that it's you can read the story of Rembrandt's life, but like all art, more important, the story of life itself, that you just don't know what's going to happen or where the road is going to lead you. And and that's why Rembrandt, I think, or that's what he expresses in his self-portraits. But I think, you know, painting yourself is just a natural thing in a way, because the first assignment that I give to all my art classes is to make a self-portrait without drawing yourself. So I tell them to, and even if it's a drawing class, I tell them to use any materials that are appropriate, but make a piece of art that when we look at it in class, when we critique it, we're going to learn something about you as a person, but that has nothing to do with your physical appearance. So that's the assignment. But what I'm getting at is I think all art making is a self-portrait without drawing yourself. That Your Facebook page is a self-portrait without drawing yourself. So to answer your question, I think all art is about yourself. Now, you want to make it universal. It's not a narcissistic thing. You're using your own experience, like Rembrandt did, to express things to other people. Like in music, you know, like I love Motown, for example, because it's not complicated music, but music in general. I, and I'm a painter, but I always say music is the greatest art, because music goes, even any music, even country, western, you know, three chords, you know, I can play this music, but it goes straight from the musician to your heart. It's like this direct thing then i think that's what art is so sometimes it's actual self-portraits but it's really expressing your view of the world through your experience so so that's why i think we make self-portraits mark charles rooney artist and educator speaking with us about his work in anticipation of the opening of the retrospective exhibition paintings 1975 through 2022 at the Hazelton Art League, April 1st through April 24th, with an opening reception on Friday, April 1st, from 6 to 9 p.m., Hazelton Art League at the Hayden Family Center for the Arts, 31 West Broad Street in Hazelton. And there will also be a coffee talk on Sunday, the 3rd of April, at the gallery at 1 o'clock, where he will talk about the work on display and give a tour. It is a retrospective exhibition, paintings 1975 through 2022, Mark Charles Rooney, 50 years. Hazelton Art League at the Hayden Family Center for the Arts, 31 West Broad Street in Hazelton, from April 1st through the 24th, with an opening reception Friday, April 1st from 6 to 9 p.m., and then a coffee talk on Sunday, April 3rd, at the gallery at 1 o'clock, with a talk and a gallery tour. For more information, on the web, Hazelton's 
hazeltonsartleague.org. So Hazelton is plural, hazeltonsartleague.org.